Gaines. Carl Middleman, it is the holiday season. Are you in a festive mood? I was until this voice from the past kept coming into my ear. And I'm like, oh my gosh, I feel like I'm 30 again. Actually, no, I could say I feel like I was 12 again because when this voice from the past came on, I listened to him when I was 12 years old and now I'm making him feel old. Oh my goodness. Well, JC and I are around the same age. He went to Northern Illinois University and I went to Illinois State University. And I think we're a year apart if memory serves. However, JC Corcoran is our guest today and Carl and JC are going to be walking down memory lane. But as Dickens says during holiday season, remembrance shines brightest at the holidays. We'll talk to my good friend, J.C. Corcoran. Yes, J.C. will be on the show today. Around 10 minutes, we'll talk House of Gucci. Around minute 28, Being the Ricardos. Around minute 34, American Underdog. Around minute 55, Red Notice. Around one hour, Is Die Hard a Christmas Movie? Around one hour and five minutes, we will talk in depth about Get Back. And then around one hour and 40 minutes, David Letterman and the Ed Sullivan Theater. So hello, J.C. Corcoran. Uh, that was a pretty classy thing right there. Uh, literary references and everything. I'll do my best to keep up. Carl, do you remember the first time we met? Because I do. Um, actually, the first time we met was at Bush Stadium. You and Johnny were doing a thing for the Cardinals and you were having a banner contest. And I was a young child. So I don't know if this is what you're talking about, but I remember it and you might not. That was the um, unauthorized banner contest. Yeah. You know, the, there, was a, um, there was a guy by the name of uh, Fred Coleman, who was the president of the Cardinals, and he was like Bob Hyland Jr. And it was just like one of these uh, terrifying, dead-eyed stares you would get from this guy. And they did not like us one bit. And nope. so we just figured the hell with it. So we said at the bottom of the sixth inning, in the game on Friday night, you bring out your banners and we'll judge them and somebody's going to win something. We, uh, we made uh, Ernie Hayes, the stadium organist, play Louie Louie, which they ran at about 20% audio. So <laughs> I, it, was, it was amazing that they did it at all, you know, that we made them play Louie Louie while we're doing an unauthorized banner contest. And hundreds of these things go up all over the place. No, the first time we ever met and actually talked was at the bottom of the escalator at the Galleria. And it was, you, you had been, I, I think maybe I was at KSD the second time while all it was going on, but I liked you even back then. And I thought yeah. I was kept you in the back of my mind, which is where you are today. And in front of you on this computer screen. Right. And then Lynn, Lynn and I had an unlikely um, awkward beginning, shall we say, because she was writing for the St. Louis Sun. And no, the St. Louis Globe Democrat. Globe Democrat. Oh, so it was still the Globe back then. I thought it was when you were at the Sun. Anyhow, mm -hmm. and uh, you were writing snarky stuff. I still remember the picture that you had at the top of the column. You were wearing sunglasses, like Wayfarers. Yeah, we were like cool. We were Who's cool the other guy? Who's the other guy? Jazz Adams. Okay. And yeah. so you guys were writing like a, a snarky column and uh, you took some shots at us and we took some shots at you and you and I didn't speak for a long time and then I met you and it's like she's really nice and uh, so now we're pals and right. she, she was a fan of the show Graham right um, well who wasn't Carl uh, I mean, you know what that's true you know still people come up to me today and say 
I miss you guys all the time. And I say, I miss it every day. I'm going to tell you something funny. I hadn't seen John Beck. John Beck was the guy who was our boss, who was our general manager for, you know, for both times that I worked in that building, MS Broadcasting, down to Union Station. And I saw him. We had drinks over the summer when I was in town in July. Yeah, I did and not believe that picture. I'm like, what the <laughs> hell? Yeah, it was a it was a very very pleasant very upbeat uh talk we, we met for over two hours was he did he know he was going to iheart at the time oh he was already there okay he was already there so uh we were uh, talking again this is the guy who was our boss uh at both Keishi and k hits and he came in in 1984. He was one of the trilateral, uh, trilateral commission that hired me <laughs> uh, at the very beginning of this whole thing. And uh, and then we parted. We didn't speak for 16 years. And then we got back together at the K-Hits project. And then we split again in 2009 when they canceled the show. I didn't see him for years. and uh, But we had a real nice talk. You know what he told me? He said, if I go to a party or I'm in some sort of public situation where there's a lot of people invariably when they find out who I am and what I do, the first thing they want to talk about is Casey. The second thing they want to talk about is JC Corcoran. And I was like, and how does that make you feel? <laughs> <laughs> you are living rent-free in his world. Yeah. I just, I just thought that was funny, but uh, yeah, even now um, he's still haunted by my very existence. <laughs> well, I love the show on, K hits and I listened to it practically every morning and you and so Carl, did we. Yeah, well, <laughs> well you and Carl yeah well Great you stuff. always put me in your holiday greetings too oh um, yeah yeah JC and I have very similar tastes in entertainment and yeah. uh so we bonded over those things like David Letterman and yeah. uh different uh movies and especially uh, you just wrote a piece on planes, trains, and automobiles and things like that. So when I first got into the uh, St. Louis Film Critics, courtesy of you, Carl and I, that's when I met Carl. Because yeah, he, he and me I had without vetted, me knowing it. We had been vetted by you and because you were a member and you would talk about it. And I would be like, oh, maybe I should be part of this. I want to do that. Sure. Yeah. So now you have... Um, Although I always enjoy what you have to say about movies, hence the invitation today. And uh, we, I know that you are uh, not involved in weekly criticism, but you do have opinions. So what has, what's something that you have seen lately that you would like to mention? Well, first of all, I want to thank like Pete Maniscalco and all those guys, because when I told them that I was uh, going to be splitting my time between Florida which is where I am now going to be uh, back in St. Louis in about, eh, about three weeks. But uh, they have a reciprocal agreement down here with the people from Allied, which is which is not going to mean anything to anybody who's listening to this. Well, we've mentioned it. We've had Pete on before as a guest. So JC has been having computer problems the whole time, and now he is frozen. And I don't so know if he can hear us. We, I can you, hear we you. Lost, okay, we could not hear you though. You were you were gonna oh, mention okay. you're gonna mention Pete because we we've had Pete and his lovely wife Bree on as guests. Yeah. So when I told them that I was going to be down in Florida a lot here and splitting our time between St. Louis and Florida, they set up a uh, basically a, a reciprocal agreement 
um, so that the uh, agency down here takes care of me. So I still see Louis uh, for the most part. And, uh, but I got a lot of other things going on too. So I, I don't know if you picked up on this because I do the JC Corcoran podcast Monday through Friday at jconthelinecom And um, one of the things I've been talking about is I'm doing stand-up comedy now. It's one of the other things I'm sort of doing on the side. So, and with the Actually, our friend, our friend Julie Lally was the one that told me about what JC was doing. She's like, Do that, you know that it's like anything. <laughs> we dropped, we lost you again. I'm getting a sign here that says my internet connection is unstable. So, well, sort of fits my personality. So, Julie Lally, Julie, Julie Lally last... was the one that told us that you were doing stand up comedy. And I said, that is perfect because it gets you out of the house. <laughs> which makes Triple C happy. And you get to try out new material and you get the immediate feedback of laughter. And Trish, by the way, you mentioned Trish Gazelle, our friend from KZK and KMOX. And by the way, how about those numbers yesterday? Did you see that? We, uh, the they, K- don't, they don't show us those. The KMOX ratings are the lowest, the second lowest in history right now, a 3.8 share. Normally, you know, you'd find KMOX in the seven and eight share mm-hmm. situation, 3.8. That's uh, that is a, that's quite a story. And, so, and no, no, no baseball for the time being. No baseball, no more Rush Limbaugh. You know, sometimes it takes a little while for the sort of ripple effect of a major entity. But we said that for years when we were up against them. We said that for years. We said that if you take baseball and Rush Limbaugh off that radio station, you have really a mediocre product and they're finding that out. But anyhow, I was saying, and I wish Dave and Trish and everybody else over there, I wish them, uh, uh, you know, the best of success and everything. They're having a rough time. They're friends. And I, I hate to see people have to struggle, but in any event, um, I, I, Trish tells me that a joke that I told her over lunch last July that she still thinks of. And she said, I was coming out of the parking garage the other day and I just burst out laughing, thinking, and here's the joke. And, and now that I've you know set it up like that, you're going to hear it and go. That's, that's the joke. That, that's the joke. But it's just amazing how things stay with people. The joke is that my server came up to me at the end of the meal the other day and said, you want a box for the leftovers? And I said, no, but I'll wrestle you for the dessert. <laughs> now, see, now I think that's, that's a, a good joke. A pretty, I think it's a pretty good joke. That's Solid. an original, and uh, and but but for some reason it is uh, tickled the fancy of one Miss Trish Gazelle, and so I digress. Where are we? Movies? Yes. I um, hear you love House of Gucci. I did. I I I liked Lady Gaga's performance more than I liked the movie itself. Um, you know, you could make the argument that in A Star Is Born, she there was not a high degree of difficulty because she was playing a singer songwriter trying to get her career started. Okay. So she went through that herself. And so she was made again, not that severe. It wasn't a stretch. Exactly. A degree of difficulty. Well, this thing is a completely different thing. This has got nothing to do with anything she's ever done before. This is real acting, real character and everything like that. I was, uh, I was pissed off that before the movie was even released, there were people attacking her on the uh, on what they, uh, I think, perceived as an inconsistent Italian accent. And there were a lot of people running around half-cocked thinking that it was like Kevin Costner in uh, the Robin Hood movie, you know, where for the first 20 minutes, he's got a 
He's got an accent. And then the rest of the movie, there's no accent. It, it, it was a completely unfair criticism. I just think it's um, I think it's those people who just sort of sit on the sidelines and throw rocks at people who are trying to do something with their lives and their careers. And especially they love going after women on top of it. It just seems like you 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 take a guy and he's trying to stretch. That's one thing. A woman tries to stretch, it seems like the criticism is even more goofy. And more severe, and but yeah, I, I really, really liked her performance. She's the reason to see the movie. All three hours of it? Ha! <laughs> uh, two thirty-two, I believe, if I'm not okay. mistaken. Yeah. Well, also, yeah, the thing is, nobody's I complaining remember, about nobody's complaining about the Beatles documentary. Being, I am not. I am not. I love every second of it. I watched yeah. all almost eight hours of it in two days because yeah. they, People, of course, sent us a thing. People go, well, people, people, people go to a football game or watch a football game, and that's over three hours long. And then they'll watch another one after that. And then on Sunday, they'll come back and watch the late game at seven. And then they'll come back on Monday night and watch another three hour game. Nobody compare, you know, nobody complains about the fact that that's three hours long. But you do a movie that's two and a half hours long, and, and suddenly there's something wrong with it. If, if what you're watching, if you're not sitting there looking at your watch, I don't care how long the movie. That's true. That's true. There are some movies that fly that three hour movie fly by like that. And then yeah. other movies that just drag. And that's sure. that's and you know that when you're watching right. it, if you find yourself thinking, how long is this? It's too long mm. for you. Well, uh, Max Boise and I were discussing yesterday, our colleague, uh, we were on the Wendy and Jennifer show on KTRS doing a holiday movie preview and December releases. And many of the so-called awards bait movies are long they're all over two hours being the ricardos licorice pizza they're all long but i enjoyed those which we have to talk about later but i and west side stories long and and by the way lynn by the way lynn there's another example look at all the attacks against nicole kidman by people who didn't even see the movie and i have not seen it yet either but by all accounts She's absolutely terrific in it. She is. She is incredible. And I uh, uh, I defy anybody to that, that criticized her not to be won over by her because the thing is, Deborah Messing may look like Lucy. And I know they did a spoof on Will and Grace, but she doesn't have the acting chops right. that Nicole Kidman does. And Nicole Kidman surprises all the time. Well, you know, here's the thing. Did Ray Liotta look anything like Shoeless Joe Jackson? No. In fact, Shoeless Joe Jackson was a left-handed hitter and Ray Liotta was a right-handed hitter. All right. So there was some chirping back in 1989 when Field of Dreams came out about stuff like that. And it's like, if you buy into the premise, then you it's like a comedian saying you buy the premise, you buy the joke. It's the same thing with this. So nobody cares you know who cares that that five percent of people like us <laughs> who pick well, movies apart all the time well jc you you'll appreciate this i played billy joel only the good die young on the radio today and we got a complaint it's not 1978 anymore but we got a complaint and frank ladd our buddy answered the phones and said carl's catholic he does he's not playing that song because it's 
an anti-Catholic song. If anybody would be complaining about that, it would be Carl. But no, we're still getting this in 2021 that that's an anti-Catholic song, and it's not. In fact, if you think about the song, the girl doesn't even give it up. The guy's begging the whole song. He, he She doesn't give it up. Well, you know, this all started, this was before I got to St. Louis, because that song came out in... 78. Uh, what is it? 78. 78. Okay, I was going to say 80, 78. And I do know that the Archbishop of the city of St. Louis, and also I believe it was Schnucks, they sort of got together and strong-armed radio stations and said, you know, we're going to pull our advertising. And that was the church talking. Hi-oh! Never mind. Um, <laughs> we're going we're to pull our advertising schnooks, and they're going to make trouble for you. And a couple of uh, radio stations apparently buckled. So um, it's just funny that here we are still arguing about this. It's like the people who are still old enough to remember when Elvis was on Ed Sullivan, and they made it, they, they made the, the network said, you only shoot him from the waist up. So... Uh, are you allowed to use profanity on this podcast? I yes, love because you we are not uh, CC regulated. Yeah. We're okay. not on the airwaves. Right, right. Because I, I do the same thing on my podcast, too. Uh, yeah, because I was going to say these fucking church people, <laughs> it, it's, it's like they're slowing down the natural process of societal evolution with this stuff. And I just ignore them and keep moving forward. And, uh, you know, just try to keep my voice louder than theirs. Well, right. Speak- well, it's that pearl clutching. Yeah. Well, also, JC, I remember you, you, you're not a big rap fan, but you did a like- A little more so than you, than before, Carl. Let me just stop you right there. I got a 12-year-old okay. daughter. Ah. Got a 12-year-old daughter. And you're hearing Drake and The weekend all week. Let me tell you, that Doja Cat song, yeah. Kiss, Kiss so. Me More- Oh, that's one, one of is one of the great pop songs that's come out in the last ten years. You can appreciate a good pop song. Well, and, and again, you know, I draw the line. You know, when we hit Bieber and stuff like that. But there's a lot of that stuff that's. Uh, yeah, we were li- driving back from Target last night, listening to "Naughty by Nature." This is a new song <laughs> for a twelve-year-old. She doesn't understand ninety percent of it, which is fine. OPP. But, um, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Was, was it OPP or was it uh, was it, was it OPP? Uh, okay. And yeah. Other they, people's whatever. Each, each, the... verse, each verse oh. changes. Yeah. Well, last yeah. uh, last year, uh, we, we during the pandemic, we started a family thread, and I have young nephews that are in their twenties and now thirties, and uh, I made the mistake of asking what wap stood for <laughs> yeah oh lynn yeah well, my that, nephew my nephew that'll, nick, that'll that'll clear the thanksgiving day table oh yeah my nephew nick just wrote i think you should google it <laughs> <laughs> yeah nick, nick wasn't going to be the one to put it on for everyone to see no no, no. and right, then i that, looked that, it up back to my point jc i what you said about lady gaga and house of gucci I think you said the same thing about Eminem for Eight Mile. Yeah, yeah. Because these are, and Eminem hasn't really done any acting since since Eight Mile. He's just stuck to being a producer and making music, which well, is unfortunate because he's really good in that movie. A lot of people who do that crossover thing from music to acting, 
uh, find it a very uh, stressful, unfulfilling experience. I remember talking to John Mellencamp. John, Mel this is one of those obscure movies, although it does still pop up on cable once in a while. It's Falling from Grace. Falling from Grace. Got it. You know, that's Which, good. Uh, you you, you led me to watch it. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And and again, is this a great movie? Of course not. But it is really an interesting story. And I think uh, Kay Lenz, you know, who up until that time, the only time I had ever heard of her, I think she was married to David Cassidy back in the day. <laughs> wow. But she's really good in the movie. And and but he said he'll never do anything like that again because he not only was in that movie, people forget he directed that movie. Wow. Yeah, it's called I Falling. Did, and did the that. soundtrack. Yeah. And, wow. And Eminem John already Prime. won an Oscar. Yeah, and John well, Prine was on that soundtrack. He has a great song called All the Best. And uh, but but you know, some people do this, and it's just you know, if you anybody who's ever watched a movie being made know how much sitting around there is. A lot of nothing. A lot of nothing. You, you, you shoot a scene for 20 seconds and you'll sit for two hours or longer before they call you again. And again, this was my whole experience with uh, the making of The Natural. Lynn, I don't know if you know this story or not, but I was living in Buffalo I do. back in the early 1980s when, when they made The Natural. Robert Redford, by the way, 47 when he made that movie. Wilford Brimley, 49. <laughs> Wilford Brimley had been walking around his whole life looking like a 90-year-old man. Think about that for a minute. I have, but, I have uh, crossed the uh, Brimley milestone. Once you hit... <laughs> Once you hit, the, it's something called the Brimley line. Once you cross the age where Wilbur <laughs> Brimley made Cocoon, you are officially an old person. That's really funny. Um, but uh, so I was there and I got to work on the set. And, you know, that was really my first experience with watching a movie being made. And it was like, forget it. There's no way that I could just sit around this much. It would drive me nuts. You know, three, four, three, four months of just sitting in your trailer. Forget it's like Roseanne said. She made a couple of movies. I don't want to do that anymore. She said, I sat around in my trailer sitting around. And she, I did all that when I was broke. <laughs> yeah, well, I remember well, that because you because you talked about Redford on the set and that was wonderful. Yeah. And that's one of, still one of my all-time favorite movies. And you that was uh, Barry Levinson before he was really famous. This was after Diner. That's right. And uh, it was before <clears throat> Rain Man. So yeah. that was that was really eye opening. But just making the the small short that we did two summers ago, uh, movie making is hard and yep. it's exhausting. And setting up the shot, finding the light, getting the sound, all the technical stuff. That's why they have those stand-ins for the lighting. People don't realize that. But I think the difference between rock stars and actors is act movie acting is all about the close-up it's all about the eyes and rock stars play to an arena yeah it's like Laurie so said the first time i ever heard an actress explain this to me it's like you know when you're doing television when you're doing a small theater you know you play to the house like right in front of you you do a, you know some sort of an arena situation you're playing to the last row which was funny because i saw steve martin back in the early 1970s and i was sitting in about row triple z you know and and one of the things he used to do when he played the big arenas he would come out and go and now i'm going to do the disappearing dime trick 
And he held it up. And of course, if you weren't in within 10 feet of him, you wouldn't have, you know, that's what the joke was. So pretty bad when I got to explain him. But anyhow, yeah, it's, I just think it's a frustrating experience. It's like Bill Maher told me the same thing because he made that movie Religious a couple of years back. And I said, you ever going to do another movie? He said, no way. There's too much sitting around. You know, you're a stand-up comedian. You show up at the venue the night of your performance about an hour early, just so they know you're going to show up. You walk out on stage, you do your act, you're back on the plane in St. Louis. A lot of people would catch the red eye back and they'd be back in Los Angeles, you know, sleeping in their own bed the next morning. So uh, that compared to the process of making a movie where you're sitting around for what seems like an eternity, I can imagine how that would be a frustrating and unfulfilling experience for a lot of people who aren't used to it. Well, that's what that's what Adam Sandler and George Clooney have found themselves doing. They make movies in places that they have always wanted to go and they bring all their friends and they make a vacation out of it. And they said, if I'm going to be having to do this and get paid a whole bunch of money, at least I'm going to earn it and have fun at the same time. Well, and you know, Sandler it's like, was smart. It's like George Clooney does. George Clooney makes one movie for money and makes another movie for art. And he just sort of, you know, sort of bounces back and forth. And I've got no problem with that. Well, that's why I say Robert Pattinson <laughs> and Kristen Stewart, uh, you can criticize them all you want about the Twilight movies. But what they have done, because they made all that bank, what they have done in their post-Twilight uh, life, is they're remarkable choices. And it shows their range as performers and uh, Robert Pattinson made the acting world stand up from good times. And then, uh, and then Kristen, Kristen Stewart might hopefully get nominated for an Oscar as Princess Diana, but we'll see. But, you know, they get criticism all the time. And it's like, have you seen the movie? This no. is what drives me crazy about film Twitter. Film Twitter will be a buzz and nobody's seen it. And they're just making assumptions and uh, I cannot even believe how many people I had to defend Nicole Kidman to. Right. I mean, right. I was like, well, wait till you see the movie. And that's one of the that first things I yeah. said after the movie was, I am going to be so happy to just shut people up about this. You know who I'm really enjoying watching when I say watching, I'm not necessarily referring to watching her in movies. I'm talking about watching her as a person and as an entrepreneur and just somebody who's doing something really cool these days. And this dovetails into our discussion about banking money so that you can do things that you want to do as opposed to things that you have to do to make money. Elizabeth Banks, are you watching her? This is incredible. She's becoming a force in Hollywood. She's doing her own stuff. She's doing her own stuff and she's gaining credibility. And, you know, uh, this is exciting to watch somebody like her just basically say, I'm tired of being told what to do by men and having to sit on their laps in meetings and stuff. And the whole Harvey Weinstein uh, thing, Weinstein, Steinstein. By the way, how do you decide that? Does anybody know whether... When you see a name that S-T-E-I-N, it's Steen or Stein, it just seems pretty capricious. Sometimes people pronounce it one way. Other times they pronounce it another way. Is well, there a the formula? I know. The upcoming West Side Story, Leonard Bernstein. Of course. Versus Leonard Bernstein. 
Right, right. I still can't figure out how to say Zachary Levy or Zachary <laughs> Levy. It's right. Levi. Right. Levi. Eugene, Eugene Levy, which would right. normally be Levy. So they're just trying to well, throw us Canadian. off. Well, that's Canadian. They're... <laughs> They're trying to throw us off and they're doing a damn good job. But the idea of more women being in power in Hollywood, it's sort of how I feel about politics to bring in some more women. The guys sure have fucked things up pretty good for the world. <laughs> Let's let the women take a shot. How much worse can they do really? Well, being the Ricardos has a lot of that because there are th three things. First of all, Aaron Sorkin's writing is absolutely brilliant. Great. It has a lot to unpack. I think people are going to be so surprised about this movie, which opens December 10th in theaters, but will be on Amazon Prime December 21st. So more people will see it that way because it is about Lucy being such a trailblazer in Hollywood. And she would not, she was not going to go. Tough. Yeah, yeah tough. very tough. It shows that. And also, when she was pregnant with Desi Arnaz Jr., uh, they would not allow her to say the word pregnant That's in right. the episode. So Expecting. being the Ricardos takes place one week in Lucy and Desi's career filming I Love Lucy. It is the suits, the meetings with the suits and the advertisers are quite revealing about old Hollywood. It goes uh, back to her uh, movie career and then also the prejudice against Desi being from Cuba and uh or by, you the, know, by the way did you see Javier Bardem uh, with Colbert the other night yes you know uh, the, I've never seen him in sort of a natural situation he's so menacing in any movie I'd ever seen <laughs> no country for old men he's one of the greatest villains I think I've ever seen on camera in a movie like that he's so good he shows up on Colbert the other night he's Mr. Happy he's friendly he's dancing he's winning smiling. he's just having the greatest time and I'm thinking to myself I thought he was going to come out like practically in character the guy is a trip. He's a party. And again, I would imagine that being married to Penelope Cruz would put him in a good mood <laughs> on a regular basis, but I digress. Well, he was so charming. I told people, I was like, you should have seen him. He's so good. He's very good in this movie. The um, uh, We got to review it next week, but Aaron Sorkin has taken three major facts of this week and presented it. It's the Suits versus Lucy. <laughs> It is Walter Winchell saying she's a communist. Right. And it is uh, their crumbling marriage, Lucy and Desi. And, uh, and then it's also about the whole pregnancy thing. Like when she goes, I'm pregnant. And oh my God, these guys, because they're all smoking. You know, it's all the butts going on all the time. And they're, the faces of these suits. And they were just, but this was, okay, I love Lucy had 60 million viewers in 1953 when uh, the birth episode happened. Every week, which, every week. Yes, which they had to fight for. They had to fight for that birth episode. Because uh, remember, they all had single beds and the- you know. Dick Van Dyke too. Yeah. yeah. And even so- Even as a young kid, even as a young kid, I knew there was something wrong with, Dick Van Dyke and Mary Tyler Moore, 
having separate beds, it's like, even then I knew it was like, I'd be all over that. And one of those beds would not be used. Maybe he snores. Ah. Yeah. Well, it was, it was so funny, but, and then, uh, so those are the three things there, but the, the old Hollywood, I mean, it's such a brilliant script and he gets knocked all the time too. Is it so, Aaron Sorkin talkie? Are they, well, is there yeah. a walk and talk? Um, yeah, of course there's a walk and talk. Because it's Aaron um, Sorkin. <laughs> Do you guys but, ever um, see the, the uh, Amy Schumer episode in the fast food restaurant where they did it in the style of Aaron Sorkin? Yes. The food room. If you <laughs> haven't seen it, Google it. Amy Schumer, the food room. I'll have they to did watch an it. Entire, they did an entire like eight minute sketch where they work in a fast food restaurant and it's done exactly like the newsroom. Uh, and it is one of the funniest things I have ever seen. I would say that. And, and the 12 the, Angry Men. I would say that and the the introductions, the network introductions that Key and Peel do of the football players are the yes. two things that I've seen on the internet in the last five years that make me laugh the hardest. And so they did a they did a 12 Angry Men parody on inside Amy Schumer of whether she was still fucking right. <laughs> and they have all these A-list actors debating this. And That's she's right. not even in the room and it's shot in black and white. And it's really she took those parodies and did great things with it. Hey, you know what? Did, well, that that sort of dovetails into something else I was hoping that we could talk about because we got the Kurt and Brenda movie coming out in a couple of weeks. You know, and I've had this, uh, uh, I've been screaming about this for years, the idea of having actual professional athletes be actors in movies. It's always a bad idea. Always. <laughs> Every single time. Even in the blind side. that whole, The movie just comes to a grinding halt when they start bringing in all these actual college coaches to do cameos in the movie. This drives me nuts. But as is always the case, there's an exception. And the exception was LeBron James in Trainwreck. I He's thought great. he was fantastic. Yeah, well, I was kidding. Best supporting actor. His oh. comic timing, his comic timing was impeccable. He was just great. Now, have both of you seen the Curtin and uh, Brenda movie? I have I not. Did. I did. Carl is not. Lynn, just give me give me a minute or two on that because you know, the first thing I saw before it even went into production was the fact that, you know, here we go again. It's these faith-based directors. They do, you know, Christian movies, Bible movies, all these things with these heavy-handed Tim Azell, uh, <laughs> Jerry Springer, final, final moment things. And uh, so talk to me a little bit about it because uh, from the people I've talked to, five or six people who have seen it, and everybody's saying it's going to be better than you expect. Is yes, that's the, that's the overall reaction. The first, um, I saw it because Kurt and Brenda were coming to town to introduce film it festival, at yeah. the, the film festival, and those tickets were $50 a pop. So uh, then uh, they showed it to the press, and we all had our little 20 minutes. Well, I'm sure, because, you know, I'm a peon, I'm sure the higher profile guys had more time with them. But I was I was very lucky to get that. and. Uh, the thing is, uh, we were all very apprehensive because 
I don't know if you saw that Christian movie called Breakthrough that oh, was about the, the Lake St. Louis. And you and I have talked about this before, about this praying and it'll all be better because there are children who die whose parents prayed a lot. And, uh, you know, this just, we could go a whole show about that. But so everybody was really worried that this movie. Oh, Lynn, was, they didn't pray hard enough. They... Yeah. Yeah. I know. <laughs> I know. God, God has frozen enough. his computer. That's why their kids died and the other kids lived. Right. Which oh, is so. Again? You, you yeah. were, but it was, it was very fitting and funny. <laughs> so, <laughs> well, anyway, so, you, um, uh, you liked the movie. Yes, I did. Uh, it's very inspiring. Well, first of all, Kurt's story is Hollywood ready. Right. I mean, it's a remarkable true life story. Uh, they bought the rights to his book because the first thing you notice about the movie is it's very much uh, as much a Brenda story as it is a Kurt story. Right. And they did, they were on the set. Now, they didn't have anything to do with casting. I'll tell you a couple of things that I think are very telling about it because we are supposed to hold the written reviews or the major reviews till December 17th. But they said we could talk on the socials and they are going to have early access at some of the local theaters December 17th, 18th. So I'm okay with saying that. But what I did say, and I told this to KTRS yesterday, I told some things from my Kurt and Brenda interview because i think that that tells about the movie but first of all when after i got done seeing it i was so shocked that it was much better than i thought and i had seen it with a couple of the high profile sports guys in town and i said uh, you know uh, they were given their reaction to pete maniscalco who we mentioned and they were all saying i loved it i loved it and then i said isn't it better than you thought it was going to be and they uniformly said Yes, that's the whole reaction from that's everybody. not necessarily a ringing endorsement. <laughs> yeah, but I think it's it's well done. Now, another thing is it only goes to the Super Bowl victory and then it wraps up uh, the 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 post, uh, you know, big it doesn't, year. It doesn't lead into Rise of Brady the next time that they go to the Super Bowl. No, <laughs> it doesn't. It doesn't do any of that. No. So we go. I was from... at that game. I was at that game, Carl. I'm sorry. In the flesh in person. I'm sorry. Sitting next to Maria Menunos mm. from Entertainment Tonight. And uh, she was 21 at the time. You're not supposed to wear uh, garb for no. your favorite team. She was dressed head to toe in New England Patriots stuff. But she was Maria Menunos and she was the best looking thing that was in that press box that day. So nobody complained. But here's the thing, you know, when I was working for the Rams radio network for a number of years, when um, when I was at, at, at there were two stations that were carrying the Rams and I was on both of them at various times. Um, I got to know the Warners a, a little bit, especially Brenda. And all I will say about Brenda is that I think she's great. Um. I would be scared to death to live in the same house with her, though. <laughs> um, I, I, it is just time that more women are doing what she does. And that is saying, I'm not sitting in the background waiting for other people to do stuff. I, I'm going to get out there. I'm going to do it. And people are going to hate me. And that's fine. You know what? Because she's already been through so much hell. 
you know this, Lynn, because you saw the movie, and Carl, you know, because we've talked about, you know, the, the actual story about the parents. Yeah, they being, worked for the Rams for 10 right, years. But the parents being killed by a tornado, and, you know, they were as destitute as you could imagine, you know, living in a basement, and, and the, the bedspread that they used to cover their bed at night was what they used as a tablecloth to eat, so they didn't have to eat off the floor. Right? They got no money, nothing's going anywhere. She'd come out of the Marines. They're living in Northern Iowa. And you know, what's your life gonna be? And they pulled themselves out. I still remember talking. Mike Lupica is a longtime columnist for well in, in New York and all sorts of magazines and Sports Illustrated and everything. And Mike Lupica back in 1998, uh, we had him on the air and I said, well, what do you think is the bigger story? Because we're sitting here in St. Louis. And, and we're so connected to it. And sometimes you can't really make a judgment. You have to have somebody from outside looking in. And I said, what's the bigger deal? This Mark McGuire home run chase. They were in the midst of that at the time, Sosa and McGuire. And uh, is it that or is it the, the Kurt Warner story? He goes, oh, it's not even close. It's not even close. Guys hit home runs all the time. This Kurt Warner story is the sports story of the century. So uh, it's going to be interesting to see what happens in terms of the acceptance of this film with people already having that little asterisk in the back where, where they know that this is being made by these faith-based guys who don't exactly have a good track record of making movies that don't come off as heavy-handed or in some way just something where you want to go, oh, stop it already. That's my that's my question, Lynn. Is it coming out on Christmas Day because it's a good awards uh -huh. movie, or is it coming out on Christmas Day because it will give faith-based people something to see on Jesus's birthday? No, I think it's an inspiring sports story. I really do, and it's the triumph of the human spirit. That's not and, answering the question. Well, no, I I really don't it, think. It can, I mean, it can be both. Right. It's uh, it's going to get the face crowd because um they don't care about going into the public with the pandemic <laughs> i guess you know and anyway it's going to get them uh there but also um they're not quoting the bible in this movie they're not and uh they uh are just showing their lives by example i mean they're not like uh doing any of that heavy-handed stuff that you think they might be doing because their story really is about just overcoming adversity and believing in yourself and uh you're stocking shelves at a at a high v and you still uh, have that dream you know and, and not even a high v in a, a major metropolitan area a high v on a little spot on the map in northern iowa just think about that you know, you're not overcoming just the fact that you're a stock boy. You're in the middle of nowhere on top of it. Right. And you got to swallow your pride and you got to go to arena football because yeah. arena football has offered you money and you don't want to take it because you don't want to play arena football, but you've got to be, you've got this family to take care of. And uh, the little boy who plays Zach, who was the legally blind um, is the legally blind child of Brenda and her whole sordid first marriage is like that. But uh, the first thing I said to the Warners, because, you know, even though people, people just assume in this sexist world that women know nothing about sports. So I'm always dismissed 
as like, you know, you can't know about sports. So then I have to a little raise my head because they did this to me when I interviewed Hulk Hogan. They gave me, they kept pushing me and because all the guys had to go first. And I just kept getting farther back, farther back. And the manager of Hulk Hogan came over to me and said, hey, we're running out of time. You're only going to get like three minutes with him, blah, 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 blah. So fine. So what do I say to Hulk Hogan that opens up the floodgates and he starts talking to me and he won't shut up? I mean, it was great. It was wonderful. Was I said to him, you know what Hogan knows best showed? It showed that you were a good dad. Oh my God. I got him. He started talking about his girlfriend. He started talking about his wife, he ex-wife. He started talking about his kids. He started just filling them. And the, the manager came over like, come on, we got to get going. And he points to the manager and he goes, I could talk to her forever because I humanized it. I asked him a personal question about his family. You always go for the family, you know? So the first thing I said to the warrior, but besides like people mocking me, like, what do you know about football i always say my dad played for arkansas state hello and and i had an uncle that was in the mlb of course he played for the washington senators in the early (laughs) 60s but he was in the major leagues he was in the show he and so then they go you know like okay so it just really pisses me off that i'm just always but that's just the way the world is they're going to discount you like what do you know about sports? Well, Nothing. again, you bring up such an interesting point here because there's a lot of people in St. Louis, um, a lot of guys, a lot of football fans who just despise Brenda Warner because for a, a variety of reasons, a woman speaking up in a football uh, the theater, if you will, uh, really piss off a lot of people really, really fast. And you know what? To those guys, I say, grow up grow up buddy the world is changing i mean look what we're having just in terms of football coverage you know i I was watching you know the game the other night though and and still all the guys have the important jobs and they stick the women down on the field to say um some trivial stupid thing and i guess everybody's going to start somewhere but at some point you just got to believe that this has got to change but it's it's not just sports it's politics it's everywhere look at the percentage of women who are in congress you know you've got more than half the population in this country is women not being represented uh anywhere near the what those percentages probably should should show but uh but in terms of uh this i'm really really curious to see if these uh if i have the same reaction if these guys could make a movie that isn't um, you know, all about the lard and save that for some other time. And well, if you inspire people, you inspire people. I don't understand why it necessarily has to be connected to organized religion. Anyhow, inspiration really is good, whether it's faith-based or non-faith-based. Right. Well, Brenda is a fascinating character and she's written oh, two yeah. books. And I asked her, I said, this is as much your story as it is Kurt's. Did they use information from your book? And she said, well, they bought the rights to Kurt's book. But her story is very much part of this movie. And I've always admired her. And I was very thrilled to meet both of them. And they are so humble and they are so grateful for everything they have. That doesn't go away. Uh, they they exude that you know and they're just uh, 
they're just, um, they're an inspiration. And I think a lot of people in St. Louis have followed Kurt through his career uh, after the Rams because he made such an impression. And they talked about their charity work in St. Louis and how they love St. Louis. And they went on and on about that. But the first thing I said- There was a problem with that. The problem was that he went to Arizona and so many people had- Bidwell fear that if he could have gone anywhere else, it would have been just like when Manning went to Denver, they would have followed him, but he went to Arizona, which was a strike against him. And if he would have gone to like even San Francisco or New York, they would have loved him even more. But the fact that he went to Arizona really tainted it. Well, right. and well, I'll tell you I, something else with regard to all that. I'm down here in the Tampa area. And of course, there's this guy named Brady who's playing football down here. There's a lot of people from New England who have transplanted here in Central Florida. And I, always, and I always ask him, I always ask him, you followed Brady as part of the New England Patriots for all of those years. And now you live here. He's playing right down the street. They've won the Super Bowl. <laughs> they might do it again. What do you do now if there's a Patriots game on at noon and and Tampa is playing at noon? What do you do? And you ought to see just the sick look on their faces. They just seem like, oh, why They're do you torn. ask me that? They're torn, and for good reason, I think. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Well, you know, the, the, I think people are going to be surprised. I think it's going to be like a Rudy hmm. movie. Hmm. And I think it's going to be Rudy's huge. Great. Well, 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 hold on now. Wait now. Now, but the only problem with the Rudy movie is about is it, three three percent of it actually happened. It's not true. Yeah, about right. Well, 3% I, had, I had friends who happened. went to Notre. I had friends who went to Notre Dame then, and one kind of sort of remembers it, and the other one doesn't. Yeah, has no yeah. recollection of it. No, no. <laughs> Joe Montana was there at the time, and he's like that. That, that movie is like maybe five percent true but uh but it's still good movies and dan divine was at mizzou when that movie came out and so (laughs) he's like um i that is not what happened at all right right well the the two things the two things i do say about this movie is the makeup of dennis quaid as dick vermeil is terrible (laughs) terrible distractingly bad and uh mike martz is made out to be the villain and I asked the sports guys afterwards, I said, was Mike Martz that much of a jerk? And, but I used to know. And, and what did they uh, say? And they said, oh yeah. Oh yeah, that's right. Yeah. Well, Dennis Quaid seems to have this uh, sports movie thing down. He was so good in The Rookie. Right. So, you know, I'm willing to give him another chance in there. And uh, again, having only seen two or three trailers for the movie, I, I like what I'm seeing, I guess. We'll see. I want to say one more thing about Brenda. And this is supposed to be about movies, but since this whole thing is based on a story that we all lived through and we're very, very close to, there's a lot, because Carl said something a moment ago. Uh, sometimes people think that um, the, the whole idea of the Warners being humble people is double talk because you see Brenda in Plaza Frontenac all the time and she's wearing very, very expensive clothes and boots and everything i mean she is uh she's not getting her hair done all the time getting her hair done all the time and i have a very simple answer to that this is a woman who came from nowhere a woman who was in the marines you know you walk in the first day and they give you that gi jane look you know or it's actually more like the john candy look from stripes do you know when they cut everybody's hair in that movie in stripes 
they didn't tell John Candy that he was getting the buzz cut. Because if you look, Harold Ramis and Bill Murray still have pretty long hair. They don't have it as long as they had at the beginning of the movie, but they still have a full head of hair. John Candy, they went in and they mowed him down. They said he was in tears afterwards because he looked at himself and he realized what they had done to him. And they didn't didn't tell him. (laughs) They didn't tell him they were going to do that. But, you know, you get that, you know, you're Brenda Warner and then you're poor you're wearing rags basically and finally you know your husband hits it big your family suddenly has some money and if i were her i would do the same thing everybody would everybody every single person would every single person have some fun with your life after having had none for basically your whole life up until that point right well it's not like it's jim and tammy faye here's the I know. Now I'm gonna I'm gonna tie all of the things that we have said together right now. Uh, no, talking. Uh, all right. So we we were talking about athletes and athletes in movies, and Lynn was talking about Hulk Hogan. I think the best actor in Trainwreck is John Cena, and he and he is great in that movie. And he has he and the, Dwayne the Rock Johnson, lesser degree Hulk Hogan, but they elevate the movies because I think they're appreciative of being former athletes in WWE and now that they're getting to act and actually show people that they have skills besides them just being a, an ox or a big bull that they they're actually genuinely happy to be doing what they're doing and you can see that that's why I say JC I say this all the time Dwayne the Rock Johnson elevates everything he's in just because of his positivity yeah I, he does I, and did you see did you see John Cena on uh last uh last week tonight uh with uh john they're, they're the same yeah. age they have the same birthday That's really that funny. was ge- that was genius and then that bit on colbert about uh, whatever they did but no he's so game for anything he's like john ham in a way that they'll just yeah. they'll just make fun of themselves or they'll paul rudd put- is that way too do anything for a laugh yeah. Yeah, yeah um, I'm, I'm, I, I got wait, one more question about the, the you mentioned the makeup, uh, the uh, Dennis Quaid makeup in the new Kurt and Brenda movie. Uh, is the makeup worse than Harry Connick Jr.'s headpiece last <laughs> night on the live? I thought Annie? of that joke. I thought of that joke and didn't say it. It looked like it for a minute. It looked like his skull cap was coming off. My See, daughter and I, Francesca's 12 now, and she goes, look, I think his skull cap's coming Daddy, off. Daddy, what's wrong with that man? <laughs> and it was uh what, what did you watch that last night i did not but i saw him and the little girl on macy's thanksgiving day parade right. and he it looked he he looks natural with that head of hair they should have mm-hmm. i did read something today that said if annie doesn't have to have red hair daddy warbucks doesn't have to be bald which is an interesting take on it could you have that needle pointed for me? I'd like to hang that on the wall. <laughs> now, did I was talking about Dwayne the Rock Johnson because I saw and I really enjoyed Red Notice with Gal Gadot and Ryan Reynolds. I saw it on Netflix and I thought it was going to be awful because you know these Netflix things and they sent it. And I'm like, you know what? I will watch it and. It's kind of like what you said about American Underdog. I thought it was going to be garbage, and I was very surprised, and I liked it very much. I didn't see that, but uh, last summer, uh, you know, I have a daughter who lives in Louisville now, 
And so Francesca and I got on a plane and we went to go see her over the summer and we uh, had a free evening. And so I took her to see that movie where to the, was it Jungle something or other? Jungle, Jungle Cruise. What is it? Jungle, Jungle Cruise. Cruise. I almost said Jungle Fever. That would have been something completely <laughs> that different. Would, wow. Yeah. But, that uh, was Sam, Emily, Sam Emily Blunt. Emily Blunt. And they're both great at it. And I'm sitting there, I'm figuring, okay, I'm going to sit through this for two hours. She'll have a good time. And I was like, this guy is unbelievable. This guy deserves all of the, the wealth and the, yeah, but everything. He's really, really good at this, you know, and he makes an easy target, you know, because of who he is and where he came from and all that sort of stuff. But he's awfully good at this type of thing. And, you know, it's not necessarily my kind of thing, but um, you still have to recognize it, that, that he's got this down. He's got this down and I, I'm, i I might end up becoming a fan here at some point. And you have to wonder, you know, is he at some point going to turn another corner and maybe, maybe do something really, really good someday. I, I think, I think he elevates everything he's in. I think if he's given the right part, but he, I don't think he's, I don't think he's been given that opportunity. Even Wait, though- what is it? What is it about watching comedians we watch them become famous doing stand-up on TV and on comedy specials. And we, we see them all over the place, making us laugh, doing outrageous, funny stuff. And then one day they pop up in a serious movie and everybody goes, holy shit. Where did, I mean, Robin Williams comes to mind. Of course, they didn't, the studios had no idea what to do with him until Good Morning Vietnam, which of course, was a comedy, but there was a lot of serious business in that, a lot of poignancy. It was fucking Vietnam, for God's sakes. And, and now we're seeing that more and more. Even Adam Sandler has shown that, you know, given the right property, that he can do drama. What is Steve Martin is another example. Lynn, Bill Murray. Yeah, Bill Murray. What is it about that? What's happening there? They always say there's such a fine line be- between comedy and tragedy, but is it more than that? No, I just think that that they're gifted performers and they are used to, they started in those comedy clubs where they had to take the hard knocks. They're just tough. They're just tough. But also there is that thing about, you know, the movie Punchline about Uh showing that comedians can often have really screwed up lives. Punchline where Sally Field is first Tom Hanks girlfriend and then in Forrest Gump, she's his mother. (laughs) <laughs> I, well, was the, that junk, the, I was the, on that junk and that's where i met john goodman for the first time but uh i didn't uh, i knew what they were trying to do with that movie i think the movie failed but uh but i also know what you're talking about and again even tom hanks was trying to show his darker side you know he was playing the sort of uh you know brooding comic and that's pretty much what we get it's like jay leno told me a long time ago he's like i find it's one or the other Neither it's somebody like Seinfeld, you know, doesn't drink, doesn't do drugs, doesn't go running around, just, you know, you know, getting home at 4.30 in the morning and stuff like that. It's either that or it's the loner sitting on top of the building, just, you know, <laughs> deciding whether to kill himself or just kill other people. And in the, and in the midst of all of that, somewhere some comedy comes out. But um, it's got to be more than that. There's something else going on there. I haven't put my finger on it yet. Yeah, no. Well, speaking of Amy Schumer, she's very good in a new movie that's on Showtime. It's based on the 2016 Tony winning best play, The Humans. 
and it takes place on Thanksgiving and it did not have a theatrical release here. It was supposed to be shown in theaters, but it was at the St. Louis International Film Festival to a big crowd who really liked it. And then to me, Amy Schumer is one of the standouts in this ensemble. Amy Schumer is got more talent in her little finger than most people got in their whole bodies. I think she is absolutely remarkable. I think she can do anything. Yes, and now she's a parent and she's, you know, a wife. And so I also think that that changes people too. I couldn't get through the documentary about her being pregnant though. I watched the first episode and you know, I it was more reality show than it was. Yeah, I'm with you on that. Uh, 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 it was cinema verite rather than what you expected it to be and i and i still have it in my amazon queue and i want to watch the rest of it and i i know she had the baby so everything's fine um this is your show but I, i'm looking at the clock here now i want to run out of time do we even broach this issue because i'm afraid i'm gonna just make enemies some of my best friends some of the people who i hold dear and close to me we just disagree on this whole thing about Die Hard being a Christmas movie. It's, I'm in it's your just, camp. I'm in your camp. I I'm, don't think I'm, it is. I'm writing a I'm writing a piece right now that I'll be posting probably over the weekend at some point. But it just really bothers me that people that I love do not see that there isn't anything in this movie other than the fact that it just happens to happen on Christmas Eve. Other than that. I could read, I could list 10 movies off the top of my head where there's some sort of a Christmas scene. It doesn't now make any, it a Christmas movie. Any Shane Black movie takes place at, at Christmas time. That's just that's just well, Shane Black's MO. Okay, but but you know, but the other thing is you gotta know something about the people who made this movie, and I would include Bruce Willis in that. These are really, really um occasionally dark people. They're so cynical about this country and about the media and just about people and the name joel silver will emerge in the story of the piece that i'm going to put on social media over the weekend and all you have to know is what about how bruce willis feels about life and about the media and then know what joel silver is like as a human being and I don't think, given that information, that anybody would still walk away thinking that Die Hard was a Christmas movie. They're really, really not nice people. And they have, again, this dark, cynical view of the world, which by my way of thinking, you know, I'm not, I'm, I'm probably one of the most, one of the least religious people you knew that you've ever known. But I seem to remember something in the Bible about, um, <laughs> not blowing people's heads off every 30 seconds. And <laughs> I don't remember any chapter or verse in the Bible where that's included. Now, JC, is Gremlins a Christmas movie? It's been so long since I've seen it. Uh, it, I, takes, it, it takes place at Christmas time that all the toys, Phoebe, Kate, yeah. you might remember the Phoebe Cates scene, how her father died. I remember any Phoebe Cates scene. Right. <laughs> she, but, she'd be brushing her teeth and I'll tell you what kind of toothpaste <laughs> she was using. But Phoebe Cates' father died while playing Santa Claus. That's a major... Right, right. That actually has more uh, credence as a Christmas movie because it's a major plot point. 
Die Hard oh. just happens to take place at Christmas. Brid Bridget Jones' Diary, okay? I mean, Colin Firth is wearing a reindeer sweater, okay? There's falling snow, and you got the twinkling Christmas lights. Trading Places, that's set during Christmas time. Love it Actually. It was yeah. It it was not uh, it was not intended to be a Christmas movie at all. It was released in June, for God's sakes. Chronicles of Narnia. Uh, Narnia. Eyes wide shot starts with a fancy Christmas party. Um, Iron Man three. Batman Returns. While you were sleeping, Lethal Weapon opens to Jingle Bell Rock. For God's sake. Well, that's Shane. That's Shane Black. Well, yeah. I like I like uh, I do like alternative Christmas movies, and I love the ref. That's the Dennis Leary movie where he's the burglar. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Trapped in the home of Kevin Spacey and Judy Davis. And Judy Davis is having some weird Scandinavian theme meal. And meanwhile, her family's at some Denny's eating because uh -huh. they know her meal's going to be terrible. <laughs> and it's uh, it's uh, uh, Christine Baranski and people oh, and... That is a great movie that nobody knows about. And that's a Christmas movie to me, but it's an anti you know. Now, yeah. I before before we wrap it up, I need to know what JC thought of the Beatles Get Back. I need to know. Well, um, I confess to you that I have not seen the whole thing yet, and there's a reason why. When you're waiting for family members, who probably can't <laughs> hear me right now. I know what you're saying. To, to sit down and watch it with you, and they just never seem to be able to... Uh, appropriate the amount of time needed to be able to watch the thing. So I've been watching it in dribs and drabs here and there. The smoking, the yes. smoking. And, and it is another one of those reminders that look at George Harrison, who doesn't even make it out of his 50s. And Ringo, who is, I believe, 80 now. Both of them smoking like chimneys. All of them smoking like crazy in this whole It's thing. amazing that all four of them didn't die of lung cancer. Exactly. exactly. Only one. Only one of them. Yeah, yeah. So that, that's one of those just weird things. And you go, think about how much the world has changed right there in terms of our personal habits and stuff like that. Um, you know, you can see it was just really painful. My favorite Beatle was, uh, was George Harrison. And to watch him being marginalized like that really hurts to watch. And of course, that you know, the first episode that's where that's where it ends with him just basically saying, "Fuck it, I'm walking out of here." And um, but it, it, you watch those scenes and the collaborative process involving four—I will say three geniuses—and then one really, really underrated guy in Ringo. Um, Am I still on, by the way? Because I see. Yeah, no, no, I, I, okay. I'm, I'm enjoying it. Go ahead. We've been having, we've been having. There's stuff popping up on my screen here, uh, but just, just watching the, uh, the collaborative process, and then from a selfish standpoint, Lynn, I don't know if you know this or not, but back in 1989, we went to London and broadcast out of the Abbey Road Studios for a week. I didn't and know that. All of that stuff, again, I'll give you a YouTube thing you can see. And you see the, the, the stuff that I shot with my camcorder inside that studio. Because what they decided to do was that particular, you know, Abbey Road, you go in there. This is a state-of-the-art um, recording facility. And it's huge, by the way. But the studio where the Beatles did all that work, they decided to just leave it the way it was. So you have these big, long 
ceiling to floor drapes. I used to call them chubby drapes because they're stuffed with seaweed. That was the available technology at the time. They stuffed Just seaweed. Dampen the, dampen the sound. Right. And so those are hanging around all over the place. Those old sort of yellow nicotine stained, well, originally white sound panels. The second story where you'd go up these rickety stairs and that was the tiny, tiny little control room, the operating studio where George Martin sat and mixed everything. And having been in that place and to see all that stuff now in crisp, restored film, where has this stuff been? It's one of the most remarkable things I have ever watched in my life. And I can't wait for the rest of it. I just it is it is the, the best thing I've seen all year. And Lynn won't yeah. let me call it a movie. Well, why it's, isn't it, it a movie? Lynn, why is it not a movie? Because it's multiple parts. You don't sit through an eight-hour movie. Well, you call it a documentary. It's a docu series, is what they're saying. That is how okay, but, it is but, being. Okay, but that's that's just semantics. Lynn, would you would you would you call it a documentary? I'd call it a documentary series. Yeah. Okay. But and, but in, okay. in terms of the films like the International Documentary Association, the Oscars, the Critics' Choice Association, it's not counting because it's considered a TV show. However, it'll win an Emmy. I know that's not the same thing as an Oscar, but it's going to win awards for the it's TV. It's the best thing I've seen in a long time. What do What do four out of five doctors say? <laughs> don't chew gum <laughs> well the thing that's the thing is is that uh he took 57 hours and he could not condense it into a two-hour movie he said he has movie. an 18 hour cut he has an 18 hour cut and i want to see that yeah now, me JC, too, me too. Have you i want to seen... see i want to see the two hours cut from planes trains and automobiles the first cut of that movie was four and a half long uh four wow. and a half hours long i want to see all of it it's a lot of flying elvises <laughs> oh my goodness well i just um uh, i'm mesmerized by backstories i really am yeah. um one of the things is you guys are gonna laugh i'm gonna say we didn't have the reason our our format today is so free-flowing is we did not have any openings in st louis december 3rd uh in uh. theaters because we didn't have anything new the the two movies that are out wolf we did not get to see an advanced copy of and that's George McKay from uh, 1917 being a wolf, thinking he's a wolf. A and movie that a I think is overrated and didn't care for. Pardon? 1917 is overrated. Oh, yeah. You you think that. I okay. do. Still, I, so I, would then, not, I, I wouldn't agree with that, Carl. I wouldn't. Why do you think it's overrated? I think it's over. I think people like the gimmick. I don't like the story. I don't think it's that much of a technical marvel. And I think the take the gimmick out of it. Take the gimmick out of it. Then is it a is it a movie that gets your admiration? No, it's wow. It's, I, did, I really, I, I really, I didn't like the choices. I didn't like the choices that they made, especially what they do to one of the characters one third of the way in. Well, it was just on. Oh, I know what you mean. Yeah, it was just on cable a couple of weeks ago, and I watched it for the first time since I'd seen it in the theater, and I thought it really, I thought it really held up. Lynn, you said something really interesting a, a moment ago. You said I love backstories, and Carl, I'm going to ask you this too, and then I'll participate mm -hmm. too. Um, Lynn, start with you. Give me a good backstory involving something that we do. You know, 
this is a really strange existence that some of us have in that we all know one another because a couple of times a week, we are all sitting in a closed down movie theater, usually 20 or 30 of us, sometimes less than that, a lot of times less than that, but about 20 or 30 of us who all write and all perform on television and do radio and all sorts of stuff, magazine stuff. And, and we all sit there, we watch the same thing. We all walk out and come out with disparate opinions about what we just saw. Give me a little, some sort of behind the scenes story on what we do on the industry, on this job we have, seeing movies and just, just use that as the setup. Interesting. Um, we, I don't think we've seen it on film yet or TV. Well, maybe um, the, they did mock it in the animated series, The Critic. Remember that? Oh, yeah, yeah. And what was yeah. that? Uh, and what was the movie with, um, oh, the young lovers and the, they, they included the junket where a couple of people who are actually junketeers appeared in the movie. Was Julia Robertson? Oh, was it Notting Hill? No, no. Although that's good. That's a good one. Now this movie stunk, but it was, um, I'm going to say Billy Crystal was in it. Oh, this is driving me crazy. I'll, I'll think of it, but go ahead. I'm sorry to interrupt. Go ahead. Okay. No, no, that's okay. Was it the French kiss one? No, but, but he's the NBA. That's NBA, right? No, no, this is something else. This is something else. Okay. I'll think. I'll think. Okay. Well, Jason, you and I have, a, oh, Lynn, go ahead. No, I was going to, well, I was just going to say when, um, after Don't Look Up the other night, it got such divisive comments from people that it's going to be um, at the theaters next week, December 10th. That And then it's going to be on Netflix Christmas Eve. That is the Adam McKay movie about if the world ends tomorrow we deserve it because we've screwed everything up so bad and how divisive our country is so jim bats from we are movie geeks ken tenshirt my colleague at the webster kirkwood times and i came out raving about it saying it was the best comedy of the year said it was laugh out loud funny that we love the cast and then it turned over to some other people who said it's insufferable i hated it oh. it was preaching to the choir it was knocking me over the head with its preachiness, its relevance. So we came out with two polar, two polar responses. Yeah, but what do you think? But what do you think that says about what we do and sort of like, you know, play amateur psychologists here? And because I'll tell you, and, and Siskel and Ebert used to say this about one another, by the way, when Gene would see, Gene and Roger would sit there in a movie. And they'd come out and they'd have two different opinions. And each of them thought that the other guy, they saw it as a character flaw. Hmm. It's like, how could you have seen what I just saw and come away with that opinion? Because that movie just stunk and you're going to recommend it. And how can that be? That's a character flaw. Well, JC, things are changing now because before, you, when you saw a movie, you saw it in the theater and you saw it, it was a solitary experience. And even though you're with an audience and other people are laughing, if you're not laughing, you, you sometimes feel, why are these people laughing? They're dumb. They don't see what I'm doing. I don't understand why they think this is funny. But sometimes the laughter is contagious. But usually seeing a movie as it used to be, is a solitary experience that you see even though you're with other people. 
Nowadays, with streaming and such, you can pause, you can go to the bathroom, you can talk to your spouse or significant other or your children or friends, and you can have a communal experience. But back when Siskel and Ebert were there, they were watching it using their own experiences to drive their narrative. Well, also, I think that if you see close to 400 movies a year, <laughs> I think you start seeing movies different than the way the American public sees. Absolutely. Them. You know, it's it's because the average American sees maybe four to six movies a year. That's the average. And now if you but, see 400 that that you don't see movies the same way. Well, and, and but also it's different now. Now that we have Netflix and HBO Max and Disney Plus, people are seeing movies more because they have them at home. Because you know, sometimes oh, I never, I and never. That went brings up the question: Is watching a movie on television watching a movie, or is it watching TV? Right. There's a well. The pandemic changed things, and also now we now have to say it opens in theaters. It opens in theaters only. Then it's on streaming. It's only on streaming, and we have to say that now. We never used to have to say anything. Lynn, are people going to come back to the theaters at the same level that the pre-pandemic? No. Carl? No. no. I don't think so either. America's Sweethearts, 2001, romantic comedy. Julia, Julia Roberts, Roberts, John Cusack, Catherine Zeta-Jones, Hank Azaria, Stanley Tucci, Seth Green, Alan Arkin, and Christopher Walken. Uh, in that movie, you will actually see real, real people who I was on junkets with for I don't know, 17 years, and uh, they put them in the movie. And uh, again, I told you, real athletes shouldn't act, neither should movie critics. But also, JC, has TV or film ever gotten radio right? No. WKRP, Frasier, uh, even uh, Eric Bogosian's radio days, they never get it right. FM yeah. doesn't get that, but that's, that's a comedy but they never get the experience of doing radio music or talk they have never once gotten right and i think maybe one of the reasons for that is because there's so many different kinds of radio and depending on what building you walk into and what radio station you're talking about you're going to get a widely you're going to get a wide variance of personality disorders yes <laughs> said but types it, but i decided to change it to disorders well that that's that's fm that that is a whole bunch of disorders but even like movies like airheads or even play misty for me wait hold other... it hold it hold it. you don't think the people on talk radio today are <laughs> stranger and more odd and with more personality flaws than the, i think at one point you were right i i think at one point you go back 20 or 30 years and yeah an awful lot of people who worked in FM radio were real outcasts and oddballs and stuff like that. But now I don't even think it's close. I think the people who are capable of doing the most damage to the country and are the scariest people I think I've ever met are some of these AM radio talk show hosts, which is now spilling over into FM. Right. Oh, I, I agree with you, but I just, I, the technical aspect of radio, they never get right. Yeah, well, uh, probably because it's not that exciting. <laughs> it's, you know, it's, you're... It's, it's, a, it's a dream glam job, but when you're actually doing the nuts and bolts, 
It's a lot well, of waiting around for four minutes. Well, that's why they always got to swing the cameras around and do all sorts of stuff like that to try to make it look interesting because look what we're doing. I mean, if you were watching the video of this, you would see three people sitting down in front of a computer <laughs> talking into a microphone. This is not visually satisfying. And even, even in a movie like Private Parts, they don't spend that much time Howard and Robin on the radio. Exactly. And when they do, there's somebody with their clothes off or something like right. that. Yeah. Well, I don't know. So do we solve anything here today? Absolutely. Uh, world is now at peace. <laughs> do we lose Lynn? I'm not seeing anything on the screen. I don't know. So are you mad at Lori Mack for thinking Die Hard's a Christmas movie? I'm not mad at her. After she reads what I'm going to publish over the weekend. She'll be mad at you. <laughs> <laughs> oh, I could never be mad at Lori. So, yes, Lori, is, she watches Die Hard every year at Christmas. Like I said, I mean, I just think I just think people who think that it's a Christmas movie are wrong. That's all. And I'm going to I'm going to make one final uh, plea on this and then people can believe whatever they want. But I'm going to get my say on this. Go ahead. No, you'll, you'll see. Oh, it that was I, it. Oh, well, it it, it's a tease. It's a tease. It's now, a have tease. You, so have you started part two of Get Back yet? No. Okay, so that is the, that is the clip that's going around a couple minutes into it. Once George comes back, they that's when Paul creates Get Back out of thin air. And the, the surprise star is going to be Heather McCartney that you will see a couple minutes after that. And it is funny. And okay, so what did you think of the original movie, Let It Be, in 1970? Depressing depressing i saw it at a beetle triple feature at the varsity theater in new city where where uh, uh vintage vinyl is now and i was so depressed that shot of yoko sitting there all the time yeah. i'm gonna go try to find something right now hold on okay so lynn uh, michael hogg says that it's not supposed to be depressing it's supposed to be he was just, at the time, they didn't, the Beatles could have gotten back together a year later and everything would have been fine. No one, when they were shooting this, they didn't know that the Beatles were going to break up because what happened was they turned around, put those songs away, and basically they did Abbey Road right after all of that. And right. so it's, it, the Beatles get back. I'm waiting for JC here because uh shoot it it did it did win the oscar for a documentary i can't find what i was looking for i was trying to find this i did come up with my autographed copy of woody allen um annie hall uh which he signed signed for me i did come up with zucker abrams and zucker and my signed copy of fargo okay so i have that what i was looking for was a documentary that came out oh geez i don't i wouldn't even be willing to take a guess at what year it came out but it was called The Complete Beatles. Oh, 82. 82. And uh, was it Rodney, Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm McDowell. Malcolm. He, and so we, oh, that's right, because we had him in the studio. This may, may have been before you got with us. Jen may have still been with us. I'm not sure. But um, he narrated the thing. And that, up until now, that was my favorite sort of, you know, we're going to analyze, we're going to look behind the scenes of the Beatles thing. I thought they did a superb job on that. But now, of course, with all this stuff available, it just wipes. I mean, it just blows that out of the water. Uh, I'm, I'm 
I can't wait to get to the next part. Well, like I said, I still got to go back and finish. You the have first to part. wait. <laughs> yeah. You have but, to wait. Um, Carl, Carl, you, you were wait. saying about Michael Hogg said um, after. So what? What was he said? He didn't realize that you know the Beatles could have still gotten back together while they're making Let It Be. They got to, get back is not just the creation of the album Let It Be. It's the creation of half of Abbey Road at the same time, and yeah. they just didn't know it. And, because they didn't know what they were doing at that. They were coming to all JC, you're going to love the, uh, you heard, well, I don't know how far you are at the, if you're at the end, you're going to hear, isn't it a pity? And you're going to hear uh, the beginnings of all things must pass because that was going to be on let it be or, or get back is what it was going to be called. But that was going to be on there. And wouldn't you love, and John even says to George, well, if you, you can still do a solo, we'll just all play on it. And so it's, there are so many things in there. And now I'm reading all these reviews and it's not stuff that I, that I missed. It's stuff that I saw that I just didn't realize the importance. Cause you know, sure. I, I was a baby at the time. Yeah. Yeah. Well, the, again, the I'm old enough. I'm old enough to remember. And Lynn, you are too, I guess the Beatles first appearance on the Ed Sullivan show. And, okay. And, yeah, sure. And how I it was, really uh, did. Yeah. You were, you were just a kid. I was, I was, uh, uh, that year I turned 10. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I was right about the same age. And my sister who was five years older than me, brought me into the living room, sat my ass down and said, now watch this. Cause she knew what was coming and people don't, people who weren't around at the time don't understand how it changed the world. And that is not an exaggerated statement. It is the absolute truth. I can defend it 10 times through Sunday the, it changed the world and it, we had Ringo on the show Carl you might remember this we had Ringo mm -hmm. on the show and he said you know just that you know he meets so many people in airports and stuff like that and a lot he's just said that you know for a lot of musicians you know people who were musicians at the time it just completely changed life for them it gave them new channels I guess you would say to pursue and, you know, because everything up until the Beatles was, I mean, look at you know, Pat Boone and, you know, people taking the great R&B stuff from the 40s and 50s, all these great Black musicians, and then sanitizing the songs for the white audiences and the obviously very, very purely operated radio stations and doing these sanitized versions of these songs. The Beatles came along and said, here we go. Guess what this is going to be? This is going to be a little bit of both. It's going to be the energy of, it's going to be the energy of the black musicians of the forties and fifties. You know, Paul McCartney said at the end, the, the whole last half of Hey Jude, he was just imitating little Richard for God's sakes. And, and, but, but then we're also going to have these incredible songs, these, these, these breathtaking melodies these great harmonies. And now you throw it in with how cute these guys were. And it was just, it was, I got goosebumps just thinking about this. I just remember myself sitting on the floor in front of that TV, watching them and thinking to myself, even at like 10 years old, something really, really big just happened. And now here we are in the twilight. I'm in the twilight of my life, chapter three. And I'm watching all of this stuff. And to be honest with you, it's fucking with me. Because well, they were you, 25 through 28. Yeah. Yeah. 
And, uh, you know, I mean, we, when we had Paul McCartney on the air, John and I had him on the air. And I said, you know, when you watch these old, a lot of times old kinescopes, these old black and white things, and we're not talking about the Let It Be days. And I mean, we're going to talk back about the Ed Sullivan days. I said, you know, who, who was that guy? And boy, he had an answer right away. He didn't even have to think about it. He said, well, we thought we were really old. Because everybody who was in the clubs and making music and stuff like that, we were the old guys. And but you yeah, know, they were have, doing it since 58. Right. They said, but by the same token, it's like you're out on your own now. You're buying your own clothes, you buy your own cigarettes. You, you can you, tell that from the documentary. Yeah. Well, yeah. when when you uh when when we were that age, um, the Beatles, the reason they loved little Richard and Benny. King and uh, and the black music, the black music was much more prominent in England. They did not have that stigma over here in with they weren't white called DC. race records over there. Right, yeah. Right. Yeah. And then, and then if, you, George, see, if yeah. you see the musical Memphis, that really lays it out. The, the musical Memphis about integrating the black sound into yeah. the to the white teenagers. And to an extent, hairspray does that too. But pre-Beatles, it was Hootenanny. It was yeah, yeah. Uh, the Kingston Trio. Yeah. It was, that's what you got. Our parents watched Lawrence Welk. That's right. Our grandparents, well, more importantly, our grandparents, Thank I guess. Thank you, boys. And that's what you were growing up with, the Lennon sisters. One sister. and a two. The <laughs> Lennon sisters. Then the Beatles show up. And the next day in grade school, everybody's talking about it at recess because everybody watched the same things back then. Right. There and were three so channels. Everybody's talking about it. And then JC remembers this. Uh, well, the you were in Chicago, so you had WLS and, and that. But the radio changed the Mersey beat, the Mersey beat with uh, all these different Dave Clark Five and all those kind of bands. And a TV exploded. We had the Hootenanny. We had uh, more young folk on the Hollywood Palace. That movie, that thing you do really shows that. Right, right, and right. Hullabaloo, hullabaloo. Hullabaloo. We had all those. It was this catering to the young audience. Um, Sticks, Baron Fuller, and uh, Famous. They had all that mod, that Carnaby Street jazz. It was all focused to our generation. Well, and of course, when George Harrison came to America, I forget what year this. Maybe Carl, maybe you know this, but George Harrison came to visit his sister in Central Illinois, just you know, an hour or two from St. Louis, and he, for the first time, was exposed to WLS and the stations coming out of places like Memphis and Louisville, and even Little Rock, and he's hearing this stuff, going, "Holy shit! Holy shit! What is going on here with this music?" And, and you got to believe that that had a dramatic influence on his music direction, too, as, uh, you know, the Beatles were, if you remember those first couple of Beatles albums, yeah, you would get, you know, She Loves You and I Want to Hold Your Hand, but you also got, there were Covers. birds on a hill, but I never heard The Music Man. The Music Man, because those were the songs that they still had to play at their live gigs. Mm -hmm. they were still back in Liverpool and they would play weddings and banquets and stuff like that. And, and they said, that was the, that's how we got our money. We got our money by playing covers of mm -hmm. 
you know, songs from the Music Man and stuff like that. It was just Johnny an, and the Moonbeams, Johnny <laughs> and the Moonbeams, the Silver well, Beatles. Um, if you if you go back, there's a bunch of movies, Carl. Maybe you've seen these. Backbeat. Yeah. Tremendous movie. The, I want to hold John your, Lennon story. Yeah, right. I want to. I want to hold your hand. There's yes. all these great early year Beatles ones that talk about the times and and even how groundbreaking a Hard Day's Night film was by Richard Lester. Wendy Jo Sperber in I Want to Hold Your Hand trying to win those tickets and and then and them calling up and this is how I know who's the oldest Beatle. Do you mean it's the oldest Beatle who's the last one to join the group or the oldest in the band? Because that those are two different answers. And That's Beatles right. fans were all about that. I love I Want to Hold Your Hand. Well, I'm, I'm going to send you guys the link of this uh, piece that's up on YouTube. It was a piece I did for Channel 5 back in the day. And again, this was one of these situations where I just took my camcorder with me and was just shooting all sorts of stuff while we were in London. And we had access to the Abbey Road Studios and nobody was bothering us. And so we just walked right into that studio and I started shooting stills and I shot I shot video and I put all of that into this piece that I ran on channel five and I still have it and it's still remarkable to me that what I'm watching now in this documentary on Netflix or I'm sorry Disney plus Disney plus Disney plus that I was there that I was in that studio I can look around you when you watch this thing I'm going to send you you're going to look at it and go, yeah, that's right. That's that's exactly what he was talking about. Mm -hmm. There's those drapes that are all like puffy because they're stuffed full of seaweed. But um, I would have liked to have seen Glenn John's version of that album because they he was going to mm -hmm. put covers on that because he was recording everything. And th this would have been the first time in a while that a Beatles album would have had covers on it again. Yeah, they were going to do yeah. Save the Last Dance for Me. Uh, and they were gonna and Glenn John said you that's good enough you need to put this on the album but then again Glenn John's as you'll find out if, when you watch the rest of it he's marginalized because it, once Alan Klein comes in well, well again, you, you guys saw you guys saw Paul McCartney on James Corden didn't you that whole segment oh yeah that yeah. was we played I think that it won piano. an Emmy I think that, that particular yeah. episode won an Emmy that's just so terrific. And about how anywhere you go, you can you can go to any kind of gathering or pub or whatever kind of group and you start a Beatles song and everybody will join in. My children, Wendy Weiss brought this up yesterday. We raised our kids on Beatles music because that's what we did, because that was so JC, much part of our lives. JC had that Beatles lullaby disc. Yeah. Well, the other thing too is... Kids. We went to uh, Moscow, the former Soviet Union, and what year was that? That would have been 1990. There was a period there, my cat is attacking me here. Uh, there was a period there after the <laughs> Berlin Wall came down, and for about 18 months, you could actually get in and out of Moscow without you know, an act of Congress. We went in there, we were broadcasting live from Radio Moscow, and we were interviewing people on the street and you know the moscow news and just running around doing all this great stuff and at night we would be in the clubs and keeping in mind that this is russia and they're doing the best job they can with the translations it was still awfully funny to hear a guy singing jojo was a man in tucson arizona <laughs> tucson 
because if you're looking know. at it and you're Russian and it's good, it's good, you're going to say Tucson and that's what he said. So, and if you watch the documentary, you'll find out where what it was before it was Tucson, Arizona. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> well, again, th this is just, you know, what I said this earlier, watching this stuff is just messing with my brain. But at the same time, you're sort of sitting there going, you can't help but be struck by how fortunate somebody like me has been because of, you know, we had this very popular radio show for so many years and it afforded us opportunities that the average person is just never, ever, ever going to have. And here I am watching this thing, which the entire world is watching and talking about right now. And I'm one of maybe a handful of people in the world that has ever stood in that studio, unattended, I should point out, and just sort of walking around and shooting video. And again, I'll send you the link Please do. On, on YouTube of this whole thing. And I think you guys will get a real charge out of it. Oh, I would well, like that. I've been in the Sun Studio in Memphis, which is the same thing like the Million yeah. Dollar Quartet, sure. which is that thing. But to me, the Beatles are just holy grail. And my nephew went there two years ago and uh it's really touristy now like you had you had an inside view uh jc but now everything beatles related is all touristy yeah. everything is taken over by merch and that but before we before well, we I, was, talk, I was i was told that we were the last radio group to be allowed in uh -huh. because because a couple Thanks of stations you. well <laughs> a couple of stations did this before we did and the people at abbey road finally just decided hey look we can't really be doing this so we are going to just we're not going to be able to do this anymore so we were the last group to come in interestingly same thing happened we look with wheel of fortune they sent me out channel five sent me out in whatever year it was 85 maybe to do a i was there for a week sitting hanging out at wheel of fortune and everybody started wanting to do it then. And then the Wheel of Fortune people finally said, okay, here's what we're going to do. We're going to shoot our own documentary on behind the scenes at the Wheel of Fortune. If you want that, we will then make it available to you. But we were the last television station to actually get in there. But the, the Abbey Road people were very, very nice. It's so odd that I remember this man's name. Brian Gibson was, he was only like 18 or 19. He was a studio engineer at Abbey Road. When George Harrison said, I need an engineer, I got to cut this acetate. Because back then, that's what they would do. They would do demos on a little piece of, uh, what would you call acetate? It was like a plastic rubberized uh, thing. And they would that's how you would cut your demos. And I got to do this. And it was for while my guitar gently weeps. Oh, wow. And a lot of the Beatles anthology CDs now, you'll actually hear that recording. But the kid who was, and he was still working at Abbey Road. And so we had him on the air and we, you know, played the song and he told his memories of working with George Harrison, just sat down, George and a guitar in an empty, otherwise empty studio. Okay, hit record, boom, there you go. And to have had opportunities like that and others, I, um, sometimes I just sort of scratch my head and think, was that me? Was that me? And, and it was, and I, incredibly fortunate to have had uh, the some of these opportunities that only people like us get because of what we do if you look up brian gibson apple studio now it, the main the main things it says about 
Brian Gibson is how weird he thought, uh, how weird he thought Phil Spector was. And good, he said he was uh, good intuition. Very, very difficult to work. Well, uh, one of the, we're talking backstories, but, and this is off topic, but Love and Mercy about Brian Wilson. That's, that's fantastic a fantastic film. Great Carl, movie. Carl, you and saw so me. You underrated. saw me when we when we came out of that screening, and it was, uh, it was uh, I was I was in tears. One of my favorite films that year. Oh, it was so so. Me too. So good and so underrated. And it's and if you that. know if you know somebody who has had some sort of psychiatric or psychological uh, difficulty that has had to be put on medication, but the people who are calling the shots don't always necessarily have that person's best interests in mind. They nope. have their own best interests in mind. Well, look and at Britney Spears. Look at that. That whole I've got stuff. Thing. I've got stuff in my own immediate family. And I think that's probably one of the reasons it hit me so hard because when somebody is either misdiagnosed or when somebody is calling the shots who shouldn't be, and somebody is medicated to the point where they are basically turned into a zombie for 10 years of their life, you can't help. You can't help having a visceral reaction to Love and Mercy, which I think was just one of the more amazing things I've seen in a movie theater. Right. So that was that was uh, five years ago. Now um, to go, you were talking about Louise Harrison living. She had a I forget her married name, but she lived in Benton, Illinois. And Benton, if Illinois. you drive there, to uh, last summer I had to go there for a for an art for an assignment, and on the interstate 57 right by the benton turn there is this beatles display this is george harrison and the beatles and all of a sudden it's like you look and it's on the side of the road it's the illinois department of tourism did this it is marvelous it's wonderful it's just such. if you drive to carbondale i think it's on that way yes yes and uh, I was just blown away because when my kid, both my kids went to Farmdale and they didn't have that then. So it's just a recent couple of years, but it's, it's such a breath of fresh air. It's, and it's, it's an unusual highway attract uh, monument type of thing. Yes. It's, it's uh, like all of a sudden there's this giant cardboard cut out of George Harrison out, out of that. You make a turn and there he is. Yeah, I've, I've seen that. I know what you're talking about. And again, you can't help but wonder the, the things that went through George Harrison's mind when he heard American radio, mm-hmm. when he was down there and all the stuff he was pulling in at night and how it probably had, you know, a pretty significant impact on his musical direction. Well, uh, our generation went to bed every night with our earplugs from our transistor radio and I got a transistor radio for Christmas that year. And this was one way because, you know, you were sent to bed early. And this is one way that, so we all grew up the same way. Our generation. I, I, was, I was sent to bed early often and often without <laughs> dinner. But go ahead. I digress. <laughs> but you know what I'm saying? It was like, this was our music. This was our little teeny, tinny transistor radio that you had to go buy a nine volt battery to operate 
And uh, this is how we all, you know, but the Beatles being on Sel uh, Ed Sullivan is a huge touchdown for, uh, touchstone for our generation, as is the Kennedy assassination. And, and, I'll, so, and I'll tell you, you know, one, one more thing. I'll tell you one more little story, a little backstory. Uh, back in 98, I'm going to say it was, we, uh, David Letterman was doing a thing where every Friday night they would bring in an audience from a different city. Oh, yeah, I remember. Yeah. So every Friday night, it would be like tonight, it's Memphis. Uh, next week, it's Denver. Next week. So everybody, all 400 people in the theater were from one city. And they did St. Louis. And I was part of that because he was on CBS and I was working for Channel 4. And I had known Dave's people anyhow. And so they were really nice to us. And they let us in. So, um, you know, part of the story, obviously, I did a series of, of, of stories from that trip primarily focusing on the contest winners and them getting to meet Larry Bud Melman and stuff like that. But they closed down, I think it was 52nd Street. So the procession from the New York Hilton going over to the Ed Sullivan Theater, they got a police escort from NYPD. It was very cool. I got some quick shots of that, but then my camera crew and I went running full speed into the Ed Sullivan Theater because we, we wanted to set up the camera and the microphones and everything so we could, when they opened up the doors to the theater and you had the rush of people come in, we wanted to make sure we got that shot, which we did. But for about 10 minutes, I was in that theater, eh, five minutes, I was in that, in that theater by myself. Now, if you are familiar with the theater, you know that you're standing there and if you walk right up to the stage, the stage comes up about waist high. Right. And so I'm in there all by myself. There's not, nobody in there. And it just overwhelmed me. Holy shit. And I just took my hand and put it out and put it on the stage and just put my hand there and tried to remember not only the Beatles. Yes, Victor, I'm almost done. Um, <laughs> hold on here. There, Vic. You want to be on TV? There you go. Look, there's our buddy. Hello, Victor. You, you can edit all this out. You're going to talk now? He won't meow when I'm holding him, but if no. I put him down, he'll, he'll start screaming immediately. And you just took my headphones. Oh, I'm keeping all um, the sense. But I, I, uh, my, my poignant story there was interrupted by my goddamn cat. But I just put my hand there and rested there and just thought, the Beatles. But also, like, Topo Gigio. Elvis. Elvis, the Dave Clark Five, the Cowsills, Robert Klein, George Carlin, Soupy Sales, Soupy Sales, <laughs> great gig that night, huh? Uh, Look at all the Broadway people that were on Broadway people, just you know, Barbara Stiller Spurs and Mara. That's where I Stiller saw Stiller and Mara. Who are the Canadian guys? Um, the Bronte and Tyser. No, no, the comedians. From that they were not funny, but for some reason he used to have them on all the time. What the hell was the name of those two guys? Oh, oh okay. I can't think of their no, names. Was, Wayne I, and Schuster. Oh yeah, Wayne they were not, and Schuster. Oh, they the were poor, not funny. The they were little, not funny. The poor little rich, rich kid, London Lee. You know, he would come out like in an ascot in a, a blazer and talk about how miserable his life was because he was rich. It was just stuff like that. And I just, my hand was just on the stage while I was, this rush of memories was going through. And it was one of the most amazing experiences of my life. 
I know. You know, that was back then when I uh, I was in the audience for Dave in uh, 2004. And that was when you had to apply oh, yeah. and you got picked and they called you up and asked you a question. Yeah, yeah. They would not approve you to be in the audience. And they asked me, what was the name of Rupert's Deli? Ah. Or, uh, or they asked me that because I was like so upset because I had planned this trip to New York. It was uh, for my 50th birthday and I took my children and I was so mad that I hadn't heard. And then the day before I left, they called up and I was like screaming in the office and people were like that, but they only allowed you to bring one guest who had to be over right. 18. And one of my children was over 18 and the other one wasn't. So, uh, but I remember how we had to wait and they all those assistants come out and entertain you and, and everything like that. But I said to Tim before, when they were gonna open the doors, I go, we are going to go over to this section so that there's not this glut because, and I was like, the first time you go in there, you're like the Beatles played here. That's the immediate reaction you have is you are no, in the, the immediate The immediate reaction is this place is not that big. Well, that <laughs> too. And it is cold, but um, everybody was, I said, Letterman comes out and talks to the audience and takes questions. Right. And he is so nice and polite and very, seemed very interested in what people had to say. Well, I'll but, tell you one thing. It's a good thing that he didn't know you were in the crowd. <laughs> you know why? Because he does not allow anybody from the industry in the theater for the shows. If he, if, if he finds out that somebody from radio tv there's print, a reporter whatever, yeah yeah if there's a reporter in there he'll blow his he he would blow his lid in fact in 96 i got invited to come to new york and do a one-on-one -on -one with him this was shortly after he moved over to cbs and um you know so they fly me to new york i get a, a video crew and we go over to the ed sullivan theater and they're like okay come on in and you get on the elevator and you go up to the floor where the offices are and I watched the taping of the show from Dave's office. They wouldn't even allow me in the theater. And I was there to do a story on him. I went once in the 90s. I went once in the 2000s. And I went once in the teens. Yeah, yeah. Well, our buddy, Chris Albers, Chris yep. was a, uh, a graduate Writer. of St. Louis U High. And he wrote for Dave for years and in fact created a character for himself, Dwight the Troubled Teen. Oh, that, that, was, our buddy, <laughs> that was our buddy, Chris. And uh, so I got around the restriction there a couple of times. I probably shouldn't have said his name, but, you know, I don't think that uh, he, the statue of limitation. limitations ran out. Thank you, Carl. <laughs> but we have to we have to go. Yeah, we got to wrap up. Really, we could, we really, could talk, oh, talk shows. Just because we could talk. Just all three forever. of us have laryngitis now. Yes, you want to stop? I like this. I had a, I enjoyed this, this, this reminiscing and talking about things current i i i've missed this Anytime, this was guys. this was Anytime. a very special episode and i'm so glad jc that you could make it because uh, i wish my uh, microphone worked I, if, I, if i sound hollow i apologize uh for some reason my microphone will not do what it's supposed to do so it's just being picked up by the condenser mic on the computer so i'm i, I apologize for that i'll get it right next time but well, you can hear jc's podcasts at jconthelion.com Monday through right. Friday, Next we publish week. at 7 a.m. Uh, we archive everything. You can binge on the weekends if you want. It's absolutely free. And, of course, you can contact me 
uh, by email, jc at jconthelinecom on Facebook, the showgram with JC Corcoran. And again, as Carl said, uh, <coughs> excuse me, the, the daily podcast. Which is very interesting. And you produce it just like you produced your radio show with clips and specials and the 9-11 one and the uh, Cardinals, a lot of Cardinals. I always enjoyed your special episode. That's very, very sweet of you to say, you know, yesterday we ran an old interview with Leslie Nielsen because it was the anniversary of the release of The Naked Gun. So I pulled that up and boys, it, 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 I, the one we ran yesterday, the podcast for Thursday, uh, December uh, second? 2nd, September 2nd, uh, uh, December 2nd. And then the one today, which we'll play all weekend, we ran a conversation hilarious with Harry Connick Jr., who of course was on last night. So I tried to, as we always have done, um, and Carl produced for years, obviously, we try to tie into things that are going on. We still do that on the podcast. So with Harry Connick Jr. having been on the, uh, the Annie thing last night, I thought that was a good excuse uh, to be able to play that, but two particularly good podcasts yesterday and today. Lynn, where can we find you on the socials? Um, I am in all the socials. I am in Webster Kirkwood Times. I am on KTRS Radio with Ray Hartman every Thursday evening past the 10 p.m. news. I have my own website, poplifestl.com, which is our podcast name, poplifestl.com, and it's available on our website plus we have a Facebook page that we posted to. Plus, it is on, on stl.com, Ron Stevens's site. And I am on Rotten Tomatoes. And uh, my I just want to say my Eternals review had the highest number of views, I think, of my lifetime. I always suspected you of being on Rotten Tomatoes. <laughs> <laughs> well, uh, my, uh, my two critics, uh, my two Marvel critics uh, wrote underneath uh, that review, uh, you should never be allowed to review movies. And uh, <laughs> they let anybody review movies nowadays. So those, were, those were my two anti, uh, those were my two uh, Marvel fanatics that took issue with that. But anyway, <laughs> I wanted to say next week, we will review Be in the Ricardos, Don't Look Up, West Side Story, and wow. Encounter. So we will have a full slate. Plus, we're going to talk to the elf on the movies. shelf people. Pardon, and Carl? I will have seen one of those movies. And well, I'll Carl, tell gotta... you, uh, I'll leave you with, a, with another joke that made Trish Gazelle laugh. And that was, uh, and this is from my stand-up comedy act. And, and by the way, you know, I'm doing this down here in Florida. And if anybody listening to this, one of the comedy clubs in St. Louis says, yeah, we could throw Corcoran on there for like an opening act or something like that. I'm open to that. But one of my other jokes from a stand-up stand was I say, you know, uh, are any of you into gardening? And I go, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. I go, well, somebody told me um, that it helps. If you put if you put uh, horse manure on strawberries, put horse manure on strawberries, and I tried it, but you know what? I think I'm going to stick with whipped cream. Good morning, everybody. Hi, everybody. Try the veal. I'm Henny Corcoran. <laughs> you um, can find Carl, me. Where can we, yeah, I was going to ask you where to find you, Carl. I am not on Facebook. Carl. I'm yeah. not on Facebook. Still, still not on Facebook. You can find me. But on... your lovely wife is. And what do you know, is... Carl? What do you know? I know, oh, I know that I'm not on TikTok either. So I am wow. on Instagram and Twitter at underscore Carl the intern. And mostly it's me blowing the goal horn at St. Louis Blues games, which they have not. They're, they're doing well at home. 
That's all I'm going to say. But Mrs. Middleman shares a lot of family photos. Just FYI, Carl. She's smart that way. She knows she's the better half. <laughs> JC, thank and you for being on with us. I really had a good time. I, I did too. Uh, miss you and love you, Carl. We had a great thing going uh, for a lot of years, and I miss it every day. Every day. I know. I wish you could get the band back together, but life moves on. Instead, we have this. So have a good weekend, everyone. Yes, take care. Drive safe, get vaccinated. I'm going to go get my booster shot. Bye-bye. <laughs>